Hello, horse fans, and hello, mystery fans. Welcome to Horse Mysteries, the podcast that keeps on mystering. My name is David Dedrick. My name's Lisa Williamson. And welcome back to the show. I think I said welcome already, but I'll say it one more time. I'll say it one more time. Welcome back. Or as the French say, arrivederci, which I'm joking because Italian is Italian and also it means goodbye. But anyway, <laughs> everyone, we are back again for another episode of Horse Mysteries. And this week we are I believe you said we're doing a medical mystery last yes, time. Yes, yes. With a uh, a title that I believe was Kill All Your Children. <laughs> the Strangling Angel of Children. Oh, sorry. So what <laughs> do you think that means? I was close. No. I was close. No. What do you think it means? The Strangling Angel of Children. There's also a, like a subtitle. Do you want to just no, guess? No, don't, don't tell me the subtitle. Okay. A Strangling Angel. Well, I'll think about it because you know what, dear? Before we get to the the actual podcast, I mean the actual episode, we have well, I guess it's still part of the episode. But before we get to the actual story of this for this week's episode, we're going to instead talk a little bit of horse bits. Oh, I know. I've been I've been uh, confounding you <laughs> two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. So I'm I'm pretty happy about this. So um, what what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to give you actually easy. This is a this is a softball this week. Because I've been thinking, I was thinking about a little while ago, we did an episode where you're, you were doing a medical mystery and you were talking about this illness and you gave it some sort of really complicated medical name. And I was I was mad because horse diseases should have cool names. Okay. It's true. Horse, yeah. horse diseases have cool names like founder or other things, colic or... Lockjaw. Yeah, lockjaw or tying up or they get, they get splints. They get wind gall. They have wind puffs. They do all these things with the wind. I don't know why wind's so important. <laughs> but I thought we'd talk today a little bit about what is a bog spavin. Oh, bog spavin's a bursal enlargement. A bursal enlargement. Yeah. So, so what's a bursa? A bursa is fluid, or it's a basically bursa is a fluid-filled sac in a joint, and so mm-hmm. it contains a lubricating fluid, synovial fluid, yeah. and its, Often, jo- its job is its job is to well to lubricate the joint, provide some cushion, etc. And yeah, sometimes something goes wrong with the bursa itself, usually through a strain or something like that. Yeah. And and so then the fluid just kind of bulges into an area where it shouldn't be. Mm. And so uh, what was the bog spavin? Is that what we were talking about? Or yes, just, we we're talking about yeah. bog spavin. So bog spavin specifically is in the hawk. So the okay. horse's like back knee. If you don't know anything about horses. Okay, so now here's the other thing though. A horse's knee isn't where you think it's going to be. No, no. Because most people would think, would assume a horse's knee is actually what we would, well, which would be the... Halfway down their leg with the bendy part, kind of like us, yeah. right? But yeah, that is not where the the equivalent to the human knee is the, yeah. the equivalent to the human knee is what we call the stifle which is right where the junction of the back leg and the body essentially yeah so this is the joint the very kind of bendy joint in the back leg uh below that okay the major the major joint in the horse's hind leg yeah 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 and so, so yeah, it's re- it's responsible for you know a lot of the force and a lot of the you know pushing when the horse is jumping and running and things like that, um, and so yeah, it undergoes a lot of force, trauma, pressure, trauma from accidents, kicks, various things like that. Yeah. But also the forces of if you've got a horse that's poorly conformed and has crooked back legs, usually it will be crooked in the uh, hawk as well. So that just 
exacerbates all the issues there. You know, they say that uh, in the human, uh, the knee is the most poorly designed of our joints. Mm -hmm. And yes. this would probably be the equivalent to that. Yes. Yeah. If one believes that it was designed. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the most poorly put together by mm -hmm. evolution. Yeah. By that, because uh, we're basically like bits and pieces and overlays and... Mm -hmm. But yeah, to um, what a, what a bristle enlargement or bog spavin in particular will look like is just a big kind of puffy swelling. So if you could imagine like a giant blister yeah. underneath the skin but with all the horse hair over top of it. And it can be like the size of your hand or my hand anyways, not your hand. Um, Are but, my hands particularly giant? Well, they're bigger than mine. Okay. Um, so yeah, and it would be at the front of the hock joint typically. Uh, but... That all sounds bad, but often a horse won't necessarily be lame from a bog spavin, and it won't cause them lameness in the future. If it is lame, then it's usually lame as a result of the sprain or the strain, all the other tissues around there. Okay. Um, so it can be a sign that something has gone wrong, but it's a byproduct of that. It's not the thing that is causing the horse to go lame. Okay. So usually the trauma associated with what caused this to happen. Um, yeah, it's like getting that kind of bulge on your tire if there's a weak wall or something like that. Yeah. It, that's kind of a similar appearance as well. Sure, sure. And why on earth is it called a bog spavin? I think just because it's boggy. So there's bone spavin also in the hawk and okay. bog spavin in the hawk. So the two oh, two okay. of the main things that happen in the hawk that can go wrong in the hawk are called spavins. There's jack spavin and occult spavin, but I think jack spavin and occult spavin are two names for the same thing. And they're closely associated with bone spavin. But yeah, bog spavin, minor. But the ones that, you know... Are, relate to bone so like bone spavin in particular very bad because that's basically a form of osteoarthritis so whereas mm. with bog spavin we're looking at synovial fluid um and a bursa with bone spavin you're actually looking at bone on bone so yeah. you've got exostosis you've got calcification on bone rubbing lots of pain um basically can be a career ender or if not a career ender your horse is going to have to step down it's not going to continue at the same level as it was but a horse with a bog spavin can all often just continue on you might have to you know be nice to it for a little bit of time and give it a little bit of rest if it's sure. sore again from what caused the trauma in the first place, but often they'll return to work and be fine. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I'm sorry, folks, with the name Bog Spavin, I thought it would be hilarious, but apparently <laughs> it's, it's serious. <laughs> serious. Well, it's not that serious, but yeah. All right. So let's move on to the actual episode. Thank you, thank you dear, for oh, you're welcome. the horse pits. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that easy law by giving yeah. you this, this week. <laughs> Strangling Angel of Children. What oh, I was supposed to guess that. Oh, and I was too busy, too busy listening to you with rapt attention. So my mind was not divided. Uh, the Strangling Angel of Children. The Strangling. So are the children horses? No, like regular human children. Regular human children? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Okay. The subtitle is, How Did Horses Save the Children? Help Save the Children. How Did Horses Help Save the Children? Yeah. Huh. Okay, I'm I'm stumped. You don't know. Okay, I'm stumped. So there's no like one date or setting in our setup, anyways. Okay. Um, we will 
kind of hit one time period that we spent a lot of time in, but I'll just kind of lead us up to that. Uh, and we'll start in 1613. What were you doing in 1613? <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone knows I was I was hammering the 39 theses to a church door at that time. So. Okay, so this that's, was... That's sparking the Reformation. Uh-huh. This is uh, Spain. And what happened was an epidemic strikes children ages 2 through 14, sweeping through the country. Many children die. The event is remembered as El Año de la Garotillo, or the Year of Strangulations. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, jump forward to 1705 in the Marianas Islands. So this was like a, an epidemic that lasted for a while and then, yes. s- then ceased. Yeah. So then All jump right. forward to 1705 in the Marianas Islands, a simultaneous epidemic, later identified as diphtheria and typhoid together, sweeps across the island shortly after the arrival of the Jesuits, killing almost the entire population indigenous to the island, leaving just 5,000 survivors. And so that was a down from an estimated between 40 and 73,000. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Jump forward another 30 years. Okay. May... 1735 in New England. Noah Webster? Yep. Heard of him? Idiot. (laughs) This is what he wrote. He's not a very good writer either. (laughs) This is a quote. Not a good speller either. No. In a wet cold season appeared in Kingston, an inland town in New Hampshire, situated in a low plain. Does love the commas, I must say. (laughs) A disease among children, commonly called the throat distemper, of a most malignant kind, and by far the most fatal ever known in this country. It gradually traveled southward, almost stripping the country of children. It was literally the plague among children. Many families lost three or four children. Many lost all. So that was the end of the quote. So half a century later, he revisited the case and noted that many of the survivors had later died premature deaths weakened by their illness. Okay, wow. So jump forward another almost 100 years. 1826 in England. So, sorry, so you said that you tied it to, to a combination of diphtheria and typhoid. Uh, the the Marianas Islands one. Yeah. Later, they went back and they realized it was oh, okay. um, two things, unfortunately, together. Oh, so, okay, yeah. okay. So Webster wouldn't have been aware of this then? No. Because this would have been... Yeah, isolated okay. incident. Yeah. yeah, these all were like isolated incidences that no one knew about and mm. they were, you know, like 1613, 1705, 1735, jumping all over the world as well. So, yeah. yeah. So now we're in 1826 in England. So a disease spreads from France to England, where the English label it balloon sore throat. French physician Pierre Bretonneau initially names the disease diphtherite, which is Greek diphtheria for leather, as a descriptor of the pseudomembrane that forms in the throat of the victims. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, jump for another... I have no idea what diphtheria is. So is that related to like the whooping cough and stuff like that? Is that related to diphtheria? Uh, or is it that is, my... yeah, the, uh, having that kind of cough is one of the symptoms of diphtheria. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So jump forward another 30 years to California. Wait, what, so what year is it now? I'm, I'm, I'm totally 1856. lost. 1856. My math is yeah. terrible. So 1856. That's good. I thought we were in 1956. <laughs> so an epidemic strikes children ages 2 through 14, sweeping through the region. By this time, the disease has a name, diphtheria. There is no known cure. Hmm. In the process of writing this, I learned how to spell diphtheria. <laughs> <laughs> D-I-P-T-H-E-R-I-A. Yeah, I didn't know about that first H after the P. Oh, okay. I kept typing it and they like spelling it wrong. Oh, you just don't know what this word means. <laughs> Stupid computer. 
anyway. Yeah, so it's diphtheria, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. diphtheria. Yeah. Okay, so jump I forward. I missed the H, by the way. Oh, okay. I didn't get D- it right. Oh, I thought you said D-I-P-H-T-H. Yes, I did, yeah. Okay. Let's, I'll just put that H in later. Yeah. Okay, so It'll jump forward. Yeah. will make me right again. Yeah, so jump forward another 30 years to 1880 in Paris. So another diphtheria epidemic occurs, and this one is described in this way. So there's a quote, the wards of the hospitals for sick children were melancholy with a forlorn wailing. There were gurgling coughs foretelling suffocation. Hmm. On the sad rows of narrow beds were white pillows framing small faces, blue with the strangling grip of an unknown hand. End wow. Quote. Yeah. Although at the same time, like it's a children's ward in the hospital, I doubt it was like a barrel of laughs, just as on the you know normally either. Yeah, no, but I think this is worse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So same time, but across the world in a place called Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. Sleepy Eye. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is taken from an account by someone called Jeans again. Is it? No. Oh, no. Thank God. No, they were from uh, Chicago, Illinois. Um, so this is from an account but by. But you said it was in Illinois, Sleepy Eye, Illinois. No, Minnesota. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so this is from an account by a guy called Leroy G. Davis. So I think he's just describing it because it sounds like he's talking about it happening in the past. But yeah. this is, the whole thing is a direct quote from what he wrote. As early as 1877, there were a few fatal cases of diphtheria in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota, and its vicinity. They caused no particular alarm in the minds of people outside of the families immediately concerned. During the years 1878 and 1879, the number of fatal cases increased to such an extent that the residents of both town and country began to doubt the correctness of their previously formed opinions in the matter. The next year, they became really alarmed, for cases were increasing by leaps and bounds, and none of the doctors seemed to be able to save a child afflicted with what was then called black diphtheria. In 1880, the plague had reached the epidemic stage. Physicians worked heroically, worried and studied day and night, traveled long distances in storm and cold in unheated buggies or sleighs, and stayed by the bedsides of patients during critical hours, but they got nowhere. The day of the specific germ chaser was not yet, at least so far as the diphtheria germ was concerned and it was not due to arrive until slowly dragging decades passed. These decades saw the tragic end from diphtheria in infancy and early adolescence of many of the most robust and promising children. Lewis Hansen lived southeast of town about five miles. He and his wife had five children. The scourge came and took all five. It was a sad sight to see Hansen driving up the road every day or two on his way to the cemetery, alone with his dead. The children died between August 26th and September 5th. Wow. So sad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, shortly thereafter, in New York City, 1881 and 1887, two epidemics ripped through the city, claiming 4,894 children in 1881 and 4,509 in 1887. lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we will read about... How come kids were so uh, vulnerable to this? Uh... We will find out in oh. a minute. First, in 
first identified as a disease by Hippocrates in the 5th century and as an epidemic by Aetius in the 6th century, diphtheria did not commonly reach epidemic proportions until just before the Industrial Revolution, when high-density housing became the norm and the disease was spread more easily as a result of close contact. Mm. There are two forms of diphtheria, one affecting the skin and the other affecting the respiratory system. <laughs> Respiratory diphtheria is a bacterial infection of the mucous membranes of the throat. It is spread by airborne droplets, while secondary transmission can occur if a person handles infected items or touches an open wound caused by diphtheria. And I saw pictures of those skin diphtheria holes, like big holes in people's skin, look like a well going down into their leg. It was very, oh, really? Yeah. Really gross. Anyway, we're going to primarily focus on respiratory diphtheria, though. Yeah. So symptoms typically become evident two to five days after exposure. So the first symptoms for respiratory diphtheria can initially present as a simple cold or flu with a low fever, nasal discharge, and fatigue. But this can quickly develop into a swollen upper palate, cyanosis, so blue lips, etc., yeah. difficulty breathing, a husky voice, strider, which is shrill breathing sound on inspiration, and an elevated heart rate. The disease can then progress rapidly within one to five days into the serious phase with the development of the visible external marker of a swollen neck, which is known as bull neck. And this is caused by grossly swollen lymph nodes. And ultimately, this can be accompanied by the afflicted person developing a thick gray or white coating of dead tissue called pseudomembrane on the tongue and in the throat. This membrane is caused by the release of toxins that increase proteins and waste product buildup in the nose and throat, which block the airways and result in a barking cough similar to croup. Children were especially vulnerable to the disease due to their smaller airways. Worst case scenario, the buildup cuts off the airway and the child slowly suffocates. Wow. In answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah. So while many children fortunately had mild cases, in some outbreaks there was a 10% 10% fatality rate. Mm. Diphtheria mainly afflicted those in the 2 to 4 age group due to the size of their throat, I guess. Those who were afflicted by diphtheria under age 2 or over the age of 40 experienced a 20% mortality rate. So survival of the first stage of the illness did not mean people were in the clear. Short-term, toxins produced over the course of the disease would damage organs like the heart, liver, and kidneys. Nerve damage and paralysis often resulted in severe cases. Toxin absorption could then lead to coma and death. The complete progress of the acute phase of the disease usually took 6 to 10 days. For those surviving the acute phase of the disease, long-term complications involving the lungs, heart, and kidneys could persist due to damage to these organs and sometimes would result in the premature death of those previously afflicted years or even decades later. Likewise, clotting disorders caused by low platelet counts were common. Paralysis because of nerve inflammation could also result. Diphtheria became one of the leading causes of death among children between the mid-1700s and 1900. Three U.S. presidents, Lincoln, Cleveland, and Garfield, lost children to diphtheria. In 1903, one Kansas City family lost eight of their nine children in the space of a month. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. After all that. After all that. So in 1883, 
Edwin Klebs, a Swiss-German physician and bacteriologist, first identifies a bacterium that causes diphtheria. He names it the Klebs-Loffler bacterium, as he has worked together on this project with Friedrich Loffler. After many name changes... I think you'd want to name that after someone you didn't like. I think he liked this guy. No, no, that's what I mean, but I think you'd want to name like a deadly bacteria after oh, someone that you don't okay, like, I not after it. yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, it got, its name got changed anyways. Uh, today we know this bacterium as Corinbacterium diphtheri, or C. diphtheria. Okay. So it's also interesting to note that Loeffler, the guy that he actually named it after yeah. initially, yeah. did not include Klebs in his paper regarding the discovery of the bacterium, wow. nor did he give him any credit. But it is widely acknowledged that Klebs was the first to identify the diphtheria bacterium. <laughs> this becomes a, a story about a lot of uh, feuding sci uh, scientists. <laughs> Some of them are nice. So a year later, yeah. in 1884, German bacteriologist Friedrich Loeffler is the first person to cultivate C. diphtheria and prove association between the bacterium and the disease. Sorry to interrupt, but I guess I guess it, it's still I guess the idea of like cooperating amongst amongst doctors and stuff like that was still like a new idea at mm -hmm. this point. Like mm -hmm. you know, like previously everyone you know, husbanded very close to themselves all, all any kind of knowledge that they accrued over a career as a as a surgeon or doctor. They didn't pass it on. They didn't write a book telling other people how to do it. Mm -hmm. It was just purely for themselves that they 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 knew this stuff and that you know so they could just make money off of it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like, and we'll hear a little bit later about how people started creating these institutes to study and inviting particular yeah, people yeah. in to I guess get away from that. Yeah, but yeah, like this the is people who did like forcep del forceps delivery. Didn't tell anyone else how to do it. Oh, wow. So, like, you know, thousands of children, not th I guess, well, probably thousands yeah, of children died. Easily, yeah. And breach births or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then that could have been saved, but these people just kept this knowledge to themselves. Mm -hmm. They could, they would, you know, they could save yeah. babies, but no one else could do they're, it. Because... They're magicians. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's everyone. A weird, it's a weird It, it uh, is yeah. a weird thing to want to be a hero that badly. Yeah. But, oh, well. I guess, I guess even then, sociopaths were attracted to being doctors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I've heard. <laughs> I'm not saying that all doctors are sociopaths. I've just heard that it's a common hmm. uh, character type oh, for, well. for surgeons. And, uh, huh? Otherwise, it's too high pressure a job. I guess. Yeah. You have to have a little bit of, I don't care. Yeah. Probably. Okay. So, yeah, going back to Loeffler, um, yeah, he, he was the first person to isolate it, and he was also able to show that the bacillus produces an endotoxin, mm. which is the outer membrane of a cell wall that basically provides structure and protection um, that is only produced by C. diphtheria when it's infected by a certain type of bacteriophage. Hmm. Yeah. So a bacteria, uh, so bacteria that that uh, affects bacteria. Infects yes. Bacteria. Yeah. And so yeah. yeah. And when this bacteriophage uh, affects the diphtheria cell, then it produces this extra coating. So mm. yeah, a bacteriophage, literally bacteria eater, also known as phage, is a virus actually okay. that infects and replicates only in bacteria cells, and mm. does so following the injection of their genome into the bacteria's cytoplasm. Wow. So bacteriophages are among the most common and the most diverse entities in the biosphere. Wow, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess there's a lot of bacteria. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I assume so if it's a mild case, there's not enough 
C C diphtheria to be producing that, mm-hmm. you know. So if there's a lot in your throat as a ch- for children, then they're creating this coding. But yeah, if there's not probably. that many, then mm-hmm. hmm. yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so going back to that thing you were just talking about is people sharing their discoveries <laughs> and not sharing their dis- yes. discoveries. So here's a treatment. A breakthrough that came in 1885 in the USA. Mm. So this is a year after Loeffler's cellular level discovery. Yeah. Physician Joseph P. O'Dwyer, he introduces the O'Dwyer tube for laryngeal intubation in patients with laryngeal obstruction, okay. specifically kids with diphtheria. Yeah. So he was a doctor at New York City's Foundling Hospital and over the course of his work had endured the heartbreak of seeing many children under his care die horrible deaths Well, from he tried diphtheria. to figure out how to put a laryngeal, <laughs> figure out how to do a, well, a laryngeal... Well, uh, he sounded like the nicest man. Is that right? Oh, oh my goodness. He, okay. He, like, almost made me cry. So, <laughs> his tube had taken 10 years to develop, but wow. once perfected, he put it into action immediately, saving many children at the hospital. Yeah. So, he was a very quiet, very modest, very reserved, and very sensitive man, (laughs) but he decided to take his invention to a major medical convention that was being held nearby, and when he brought it up and talked about it and showed people, he was roundly ridiculed by the nation's top pediatricians. (laughs) He then returned home and actually went to bed for a long period of time. He wouldn't get out of bed, (laughs) but... Poor man. Yeah, later rebounded and then went and demanded that the physicians come to view his invention in action at the hospital. Yeah. So it only took them one look to see that the tube was actually opening the airwaves enough to prevent deaths by suffocation because they were saying... Still commonly used in hospitals. Well, it was up until the 1960s, yeah. And so, um, yeah, they said it couldn't go down the kid's throat and like okay. that was their... Yeah, cause them to choke. Yeah, that yeah. was their... I don't know. Anyways, they I- saw that it worked. Opinion. Yeah. So, yeah, the O'Dwyer tube soon replaced the tracheotomy in the case of treating diphtheria, which was typically administered as a last resort, usually with no anesthesia. Um, So tracheotomy only had a 20% success rate and Mm. carried a very high risk of secondary infection. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the O'Dwyer tube... Dirty fingers digging into people's... Yeah, yeah. Um, So the O'Dwyer tube greatly improved the odds for those afflicted, and they continued to be sold until the 1960s. We are so lucky to live where where we live. We are, yeah. So scientists around this time also learned that humans and animals have natural defense systems that produce substances in the blood that would then combat harmful bacteria. So in Europe, 1888, Parisian Emile Roth, I think that's how you say that name, R-O-U-X. R-O-U-X? Yeah. Uh, Rue, I would say. Rue, okay. So he was one of Louis Pasteur's assistants. And Andre Yersin of Switzerland, a medical doctor at the Institute of Pasteur in Paris, demonstrated that a substance produced by C. diphtheria caused diphtheria symptoms in animals. Oh, So, these European scientists investigating immune responses in animals were then able to switch their focus to developing new methods for treating the disease in humans. The scientists next found that by using blood serum collected from animals that had been inoculated with toxins from bacteria, this allowed the natural protection the animals had developed against the toxin to be passed on to humans through injections of a serum derived from the animal's blood. Mm. Very very much like smallpox with Mm -hmm. with cows. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So specifically in 1890, Japanese bacteriologist 
Shibasaburo Kitasato and German bacteriologist Emil von Bering work on the or follow on the work of Rue and learn that giving weakened tetanus toxoid to lab animals prevented those animals from developing symptoms after being exposed to the tetanus bacteria. Hmm. They also learn that blood taken from immunized animals contains serum, which is plasma from the clotting proteins that had from which the clotting proteins had been removed, that could then be injected into other animals to provide immunity. Bering then applies this principle to diphtheria and immunizes guinea pigs with a harmless, heat-treated diphtheria toxoid. The researchers next immunize horses and goats in the same way. From there, researchers were able to take a serum rich with antibodies from immunized animals to create an antitoxin to cure the disease in non-immunized animals. So in 1981, or 19, no, 1891, <laughs> took him a long time. Yes. Yeah, 1891. Von Bering attempts to use the antitoxin for human trials, but the results are unsuccessful. Huh. The same year, his colleague and later rival, Paul Ehrlich, is the first to use the name antibodies to describe the elements present in this serum. I see. The next year, 1892, von Bering uses pigs, rabbits, and sheep to successfully produce a serum for human tetanus. In December of 1892, von Bering begins human trials on a diphtheria antitoxin. However, it took two years for this trial to achieve success. Ehrlich produced a serum using goats that ultimately worked. I was thinking it was interesting with goats because goats are the kind of, like if a baby can't drink milk for whatever reason, like yeah. they can't drink cow's milk, but they usually can drink goat's milk. Mm. So that was interesting that goats worked first. Anyway, um, in the trials, 168 of 220 children were cured. The mortality rate of the afflicted children was halved to 23.6%. Yeah. In 1894, von Bering successfully optimizes the antitoxin by using horses. He utilized horses for two reasons. They did not react much, if at all, to the injections. And they were able to produce large quantities of serum. Mm. To produce the horse-derived antitoxin, Horses were injected with a weakened diphtheria toxin, and then, after enough time had passed for the animal to produce antibodies, the horses were bled and the serum collected. So later the same year in August, the Hoxt Company, in conjunction with Bering and Ehrlich, began mar- marketing a new remedy. When Bering's vaccine had two, I don't know if it was a vaccine, anyways, medicine had two major components, a diphtheria antitoxin to battle active infection and an inactivated version of the toxin produced by the bacteria. And since there was no actual bacteria in the toxin, it could not cause a diphtheria infection. Hmm. Stimulating the immune system helped to make long-lasting antibodies. I guess, I think that would be a vaccine though, if it's... Yeah, I guess maybe it was. If it's produced by using like blood serum, I Mm -hmm. think that is considered a vaccine. I guess, yeah, if it's a shot. You're right. Okay, so halfway around the world, Dr. Herman Biggs, chief bacteriologist of the New York City Health Department, hears about the new findings from Europe and undertakes a scientific tour of the continent, talking to both Dr. Baring and Dr. Ra about their use of horses to produce antitoxin at the serum factories that have been set up in many stables around Germany and that are also being established in other European countries. Biggs is pleased to learn about the fantastic results of the antitoxin that have children's deaths, especially when administered early. 
Hmm. Biggs returns to New York City, and because public funds aren't available, together with a colleague, Dr. T. Mitchell, the two men then spend $27,000 of their own money to purchase horses and set up the program. They are aided by a subscription campaign run by the New York Herald, a city newspaper that pledged $1,000 to kick kick off the drive. That number then doubled within four days. Biggs had needed to purchase the horses immediately as they had to be ripened, in quotation marks, to produce (laughs) antitoxin. But the city budget wasn't going to be approved until January 1st, 1895. However, thanks to the generosity and foresight of Biggs and Mitchell, before the end of the year, 13 horses were already producing diphtheria antitoxin at the College of Veterinary Surgeons on East 57th Street in Manhattan. In addition to its initial fundraising campaign, the Herald continued to do its part by providing daily updates on the science behind the treatment, the scientists at the forefront of the discoveries, and the role of the horses in this venture. And it wasn't just doctors and researchers who were pushing for a cure. Metropolitan Life Insurance launched an anti-diphtheria campaign in New York City with a donation of $15,000. MetLife statistician Lewis Dublin estimated that childhood illnesses, including diphtheria, cost the American economy about $200 million a year in lost parental wages and medical care. Also, the children couldn't work. Yes, true. The next year, on January 1st... Just kidding. Yeah. Kids didn't work as much. What what year are we at now? Uh, 1895. Yeah. That was starting to wind down. I guess so. Yeah. The first doses of diphtheria antitoxin serum became available. It was bacteriology's first great weapon. In 1895, Germany has numerous large-scale facilities owned and run by pharmaceutical companies that are producing and marketing the diphtheria antitoxin. In the USA, H.K. Mulford Company of Philadelphia tests and produces a commercial horse-derived diphtheria antitoxin. In 1879, 1897, German physician and researcher Dr. Paul Ehrlich developed a standardized unit of measure for the diphtheria antitoxin. This is the first ever standardization of a biological product, paving the way for the future, the development of future sera and vaccines. So between 1894 and 1900, diphtheria deaths dropped from 2,870 to 1,000. 400 and continues a steady decline over the following decades. I think that's in New York. Okay. In 1901, von Bering is awarded the first Nobel Prize for medicine for his work on diphtheria. Huh. Also but in not the, Ehrlich? No. I said he was a rival, later <laughs> rival. We'll hear more about that later. Well, I can see the the seeds of this of the dispute here. Yeah. So, also in 18 or 1901, uh, 10 out of 11 children in a St. Louis inoculation group die from a contaminated batch of diphtheria antitoxin. It was ultimately found that the serum came from a horse named Jim, who is sick with tetanus. Oh, no. This is the world's first modern medical disaster and leads to the initiation of federal regulation of biological products. Wow. Yeah. So, it must have been under Roosevelt, I guess. Mm, I think so, yeah. In 1906, 59 antitoxin horses, some retired police horses, others purchased from farmers, were moved to Otisville in upstate New York onto a 175-acre farm and tuberculosis sanitarium. Back in New York City, the city continues to operate 318 distribution stations in the five boroughs so doctors could immediately access fresh antitoxin. 
1924, Gaston Ramon developed the diphtheria toxoid, a neutralized form of the toxin, which would eventually be developed into the TDAP vaccine that is still used today. In January 1925, Dr. Curtis Welch, Nome, Alaska's only medical doctor, tries to order the diphtheria vaccine as he realizes the native Alaskans have little to no immunity against diphtheria. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, the harbor froze before delivery could be completed. So with children starting to succumb to the disease, Welch arranged for 300,000 units to be carried to Nome overland, first by train and then by dog sled for the last 674 miles. Governor Scott Bone helped to plan the dog sled relay, which involved 20 teams. This story was immortalized in the story of Balto, who has a statue dedicated oh, yeah. to him in Central Park, New York City. Yeah, there's an animated cartoon about mm -hmm. him. Disney's 19, or 2019 movie Togo is also based on this true story. So, okay. yeah, that's our movie connection there. <laughs> So in 1927, but I British. Think there is a separate one about Balto. I thought there was a, a different one about Balto as well. Yeah. So in 1927, British researcher Alex Glennie developed a diphtheria back vaccine. In the 1940s, diphtheria vaccine was incorporated with the tetanus toxoid and the pertussis vaccine. So DTAP or DT vaccine, and has been in routine use in the Western world since then. Today, there are five combinations of this vaccine, including Pediarix and Kinrix, which I've heard of. So in the 1920s, the U.S. was experiencing 100,000 to 200,000 cases yearly, with the average of 13 to 15,000 deaths annually. By 1945, the U.S. was down to 19,000 cases a year. In the U.K., in 1942, they reported 60,000 cases and 4,000 deaths. But with their routine immunization program introduced in 1942, these numbers dropped quickly. Did you find out about Balto? Yeah, there's a 1995 film called Balto. Oh, okay. Yeah. Animated yeah. film. Yeah, and he was a black and white dog. I think I've seen that. Yeah, we did watch it. Mm-hmm. So there's two primary routes to wellness that arose from the diphtheria research, one being a treatment for those already afflicted and the other being a preventative vaccine. Hmm. So while the treatment of those who were already ill involved the therapeutic administration of antibodies to create passive immunity, the vaccine that was developed later... So I guess that was... They call it a serum run in the in the description of the movie. Okay. So maybe that's the difference between a vaccine and a serum. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's where it's different. The Probably. vaccine is preventative and a serum is a cure, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once you have it, yeah, yeah, it's a cure. So, and what we see later or hear about shortly is basically the, it's the more effective the earlier you get it, which makes sense, right? Sure, yeah. sure. Um, so would we have been... Yes. We would have been vaccinated yeah, yeah. for diphtheria, right? Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, we'll go through the, the I don't know, the, uh, what is the protocol or whatever, but okay. yeah, it's still in use today. Wow. Yeah. And then it's, yeah, rolled into a couple of other vaccines. That's right. Um, but yeah, it's commonly used today, which is good. Um, <laughs> yes. So the treatment of those who are already ill involved the therapeutic administration of antibodies to create passive immunity, but the vaccine that was developed later elicits the production of antibodies to provide ongoing long-term active immunity. So yeah, that's what we have. Hmm. So the treatment for those who are already ill was the antitoxin. 
So for, with diphtheria, we look specifically at the diphtheria antitoxin, which has a clinical efficacy of 97%. Um, it's been the cornerstone of therapy for diphtheria since that 1898 controlled trial, which was pro proven to reduce mortality from 7 to 2.5%. So it is a hyperimmune antiserum or antitoxin that is produced in horses via injections of formaldehyde inactivated diphtheria toxin. So when you heard about people complaining about COVID and formaldehyde, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, so antitoxin neutralizes unbound exotoxin and is very effective in conjunction with an antibiotic therapy. So uh, yeah, it's not just the serum, but antibiotics to go along with it. Sure. For those afflicted with diphtheria, it's extremely important that treatment be administered upon presumptive clinical diagnosis, because once a cell internalizes the toxin, cell death is unavoidable. So the antibodies only neutralize the toxin before the toxin gains entry into cells. Consequently, standard protocol is that the diphtheria antitoxin is administered when the disease is first suspected, even before lab confirmation. So this is true for all cases consistent with diphtheria, as it's observed that the degree of protection offered is inversely related to the duration of the illness prior to the antitoxin administration. Hmm. So in other words, the longer someone's sick, the less effective the treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So sensitivity to the antitoxin should be carried out for each patient. 20% of those treated with the antitoxin suffer severe reactions to the horse blood plasma. This is called serum sickness. Because the disease is seen so rarely now in the Western world, in the United States, the antitoxin is only available directly from the CDC. Because of this, acquiring supplies of antitoxin for therapeutic use may result in treatment delays. In conjunction with the antitoxin, again, antibiotics are to be used. So the second route to wellness that results from the extensive research falls under the umbrella of prevention in the form of a vaccine, which has been widely available since the 1940s. So the human vaccine is also produced from horses by injections of formaldehyde and in inactivated uh, toxin. Hmm. Um, toxoid rather. The vaccine has resulted in a significant drop in both infections and deaths. So in the UK in 1900, diphtheria was the third highest cause of infant mortality after measles and pneumonia. <laughs> Worldwide, it was the second leading cause of child death after malaria. In the UK in 1940, 46,000 cases occurred with 3,500 deaths. Following the introduction of the vaccine by 1950, the UK only experienced 962 cases total and 49 deaths. So numbers have dropped and held steady in the UK ever since, with only four deaths in the UK noted between 2000 and 2020. <laughs> When I first heard about this horses and they use some medicine from them to cu cure this disease, I was like, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and then I read about it and I'm like, oh. Yeah, probably, it's probably like industrial scale. It is. Yeah. Yeah. They, they talk about industrial blood production or blood factories. So there's a lot of those sort of words that yeah, are used. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the horses. Horses were the preferred animal for industrial blood production for many reasons. Number one, due to the enormous 
production capacity of the equine heart, coupled with the extraordinary storage capacity of the equine spleen. Horses were able to produce more serum than other animals that had been used in the experimentation process. Uh, two, the diphtheria toxin does not seriously harm horses. And three, the horses were tractable and easy to work with, being fairly passive and accepting during the procedures. Hmm. So only the healthiest horses were selected for the process. And as time passed, it was learned that younger horses were also better serum providers. Younger horses usually resulted in what was known as a high-yield horse. (laughs) Interestingly, not only were high-test or high-yield horses better producers, they also required a shorter time for immunization and to achieve a high-yield potential. To ripen or prepare a horse for extraction, the horse had to be injected with toxin over a period of three to six months on average. In an early study done by William R. Hubert, MD, entitled Comparative Statistics of Antitoxin Horses, a study of the records of 100 horses immunized to diphtheria toxin with a composite of curves, Hubert noted that there was no method known by which we were able to select high-test horses in advance of the tedious immunizing process. And that, this is a quote again, if the serum of a new horse does not test 300 units by the end of the fourth month after the beginning of treatment, it may be regarded as near certain that the animal is not a suitable one for the work. Okay. So this Hubert guy, he actually ran a bunch of didn't run horses, but he was in charge of. And then there was another guy who he worked with who had a bunch of horses. And a lot of his, when he, it was called the comparative statistics, he talked a lot about his horses versus the other guy's horses. Hmm. So other findings of Hubert included the fact that horses attain their maximum antitoxic value two to ten months from the beginning of treatment, with the average being four months. It was found that they would then yield serum of marketable value Uh, for an average of five months, at which point the decline started. Hubert noted somewhat sadly that this decline was one from which no horse recovered. The fourth month was typically noted as a horse's best month, and Hubert also observed that horses that attained a high antitoxic strength exhibited a longer period of usefulness. It was also learned that every horse had a maximum antitoxin limit. As well, they found that around only half of the horses would actually produce antitoxin. Additionally, it was not unusual for horses in summer to experience a seasonal drop in serum production. So Hubert lamented the short period of usefulness of the horses, with the maximum being two to three years, but the average being just a matter of months. The number of doses to achieve 600 units varied greatly between horses, with one horse requiring just 5,021... 521,500 fatal guinea pig doses, but another requiring 4,320,000 fatal guinea pig doses. <laughs> I said unusual measuring. Yes, it is. System. I have not thrown no, that system. But it's a thing. Um, Hubert also noted that the care and dosing given to the horses affected the output, noting that he did not force, and that was the word he used, in quotation marks, the horses, while noting comparatively that his colleague did. <laughs> so from this basis of comparison, Hubert was able to ascertain that although it took longer to develop antitoxin of maximal strength, he was able to produce and maintain a greater percentage of high-test horses over a longer period through not forcing them initially. Hmm. In another more recent paper written on the use of 
industrial production of biologicals involving horses. It was noted that the hot-blooded horses, such as thoroughbreds, were better producers, on average being able to produce 100 milliliters per kilogram compared to draft horses that typically only produce 65 liters per kilogram. This paper also gave a guideline for removing a maximum 10% of circulating blood per session for the purpose of welfare and longevity, although it was noted that up to 25% of the circulating blood could be removed per session, but this had a very negative impact on the horse's usefulness and longevity, which you can imagine. Yeah. In New York City, starting in 1897, antitoxin lab workers recorded everything about the horses under their care, from their yield to their health, right down to the horses' descriptors, including color, sex, price, age, and, in quotation marks again, final disposition. Final disposition. What, where they ended up? Yes. After they passed on? Yeah. So, in some cases, horses were purpose-bought for the lab, and in other cases, Cases, horses that were being retired from civic duty, like police horses, ended up in the labs. For instance, horse number 111 was listed as a bay gelding of at least seven years old, purchased for $215. He was at the facility just over a year before he died, and in that time underwent nine rounds of bleeding. Hmm. Another horse, number 299, was an eight-year-old roan gelding who had been purchased on September 1st, 1905 for $100 and was later destroyed on December 28th, 1906. In the course of his lifetime as a living serum factory, horse number 299 produced between 4,750 no, 4, to 8,000 cc's through 12 sessions between January and April alone, but we know his work extended beyond those dates. <laughs> These industrial horses became public heroes, and their fame spread worldwide. The horses were viewed as saviors, and the media did a great job of reporting on the contributions made by antitoxin horses. Individual horses became well-known stars for their ability to reliably produce large amounts of serum. Dr. Biggs was very involved in this publicity and took great pride in showing off the clean stables and sanitary living conditions of the horses. He emphasized the kind treatment, great husbandry, and excellent sanitation practice at the facility to keep the horses happy and healthy. The media, through regular newspaper and magazine articles and even films, helped to normalize the practice of keeping horses as the key instruments of industrial blood production. Not everyone was on board, however. Newspaper magnate and early anti-vaxxer Joseph Pulitzer ran frequent articles decrying the whole industry and used his St. Louis-based post-dispatch to spread the anti-vax gospel. <laughs> So unfortunately, in September 1901, we heard about this briefly before, a farmer mule wagon horse named Jim had his diphtheria antibodies drawn in one of the serum production facilities, but then shortly afterwards developed tetanus. The antibodies pulled from Jim were supposed to have been destroyed, but due to a labeling mix-up, the antitoxin created from serum taken from Jim was sent out to doctors in St. Louis, Missouri. On October 2nd, 1901, Jim was put down when he contracted full-blown tetanus. <laughs> Jim, by that time, had produced over 30 U.S. quarts of serum in his protracted career. Unfortunately, the first child injected, erroneously of course, with Jim's antibodies was a young St. Louis girl called Bessie Baker, who quickly recovered from her diphtheria, but then succumbed to tetanus five days after receiving the diphtheria antitoxin. The serum taken from Jim, dated September 30th, contained tetanus in its incubation phase and unfortunately was distributed widely. 
Two of Bessie's siblings also died as a result of the tainted and mislabeled toxin, along with 10 other children. So the deaths were highly publicized in the widely read Pulitzer Own Post-Dispatch. Pulitzer, the inventor of yellow journalism, saw this medical disaster as an opportunity to sell more papers, so he jumped on it. A month later, Pulitzer was there again with his nationally read newspapers decrying the death of 11 children in New Jersey who had inadvertently been exposed to tetanus via the smallpox vaccine. On a positive note, these incidents and resultant publicity ultimately resulted in President Theodore Roosevelt signing the Biologics Control Act of 1902, which standardized protocols for vaccine production. After the initial phase of the program in New York City, the diphtheria horses were sent to the farm in Otisville, which is located in Orange County, upstate New York, which ran a program for making diphtheria and tetanus toxoids using horses, but also housed and utilized sheep, rabbits, and mice. By 1983, mice. well, I guess, I guess, I guess for other things, yeah, yeah for other not, things, they're not using them for serum. That's I don't for sure. think so. Yeah, by 1983, the need for diphtheria vaccines had faded. Meanwhile, costs were rising. Operating costs for the farm were $300,000 in 1982. Additionally, people, particularly horse lovers, were protesting the use of horses at the farm. The decision was made to close the facility and sell the farm. The farm was sold, sold to Otisville Biotech on April 29th. 1983 for 490,000 with the agreement that all 57 remaining horses would be allowed to live their lives out at the farm and the farm would likewise provide a retirement spot for all future retired police horses. While industrial blood collection horses in the western world were largely well cared for over their shortened lifespan the same was not true for horses being used to produce the antibodies elsewhere. Recently in India, a report by PETA stated that visiting vets found many horses used in the production of serum living with serious animal welfare concerns. As of 2020, India had 10 serum collection facilities housing just under 7,000 horses. The facilities were of varying sizes and the care of the animals varied from place to place, but overall, most were found to be greatly deficient in husbandry standards and were not providing an adequate level of basic care for the horses. The vet contingent found many horses in the facilities overcrowded and housed improperly. Some mares on site had been impregnated as they were kept with stallions. Many of the horses had been had untreated injuries, and many showed signs of lameness or had chronic sores from being housed with inadequate bedding. Due to the multiple injection sites required for priming the horses, infections were rampant. Even worse, one facility had designed a device that was essentially a chain-link cage on wheels that was used to roll over downed horses. Yeah, this device kept birds or other carrion away from the horse, but also enabled the people to continue to draw blood from the downed animal rather than doing the humane thing and euthanizing it. In 2021, a paper entitled Recommendations for Ensuring Good Welfare of Horses Used in Industrial Blood, Serum, and Urine Production was written by Villanova et al. as a means of providing recommendations for equine welfare for those horses involved in the production of various biologics and equine-derived therapies. So in addition to using horses for the production of diphtheria therapies, horses are still very successfully and commonly used today in an industrial capacity for creating therapies for the following diseases and issues. I had no idea about this. Botulism, gas gas gangrene, streptococcus pneumonia, hemophilus influenza, 
meningitis, anthrax, rabies, aplastic anemia, menopause, not a disease, but a <laughs> problem for sure, um, and others, as well as antivenom for poison bites uh, and stings from snakes, spiders, jellyfish, scorpions, and the like. Wow. Yeah. Currently, guidelines only exist for the care of horses providing snake bite antivenom, and this, these were set out by the World Health Organization, okay. and also for horses in the PMU industry, so pregnant mare urine for mm, yeah. women in yeah. menopause, um, and those are set out by the Equine Advisory Board in Canada. Villanova's paper promotes the impl implementation of the five freedoms in order to ensure good welfare. So the five freedoms are, one... The horse should be able to express their normal behavior. Two, they should be free from hunger and thirst. Three, they should not experience discomfort. Four, they should be free of pain, injury, and disease. And five, they should be free of fear and distress. Hmm. The paper also suggests further investigation into the use of plasmapheresis for any horse used in the blood serum industry. Plasmapheresis is the separation of plasma from the blood cells, at which point all the blood cells are returned to the horse. Uh, at this point, it is not a viable alternative until improvements in hygiene and extraction are made. But possible going forward. <laughs> so we'll just go back and look at some of these doctors and corporations involved in. Okay. Yeah. Because some of these guys are interesting. Okay. I thought. <laughs> They're heroes. <laughs> yeah. The horses are heroes, but these people are heroes, even if some of them are jerks. <laughs> okay. So, after working with Shibasa Bureau to develop antitoxins against both diphtheria and tetanus back in 1901, Von Bering continued with his work, ultimately winning the first Nobel Prize for medicine in 1901 for his developing serum therapies against diphtheria. In 1904, oh. what? I said, what? Oh, sorry. In 1904, von Bering founded Beringwerk in Marburg, Germany. The company specialized in disease prevention and the manufacture of sera and vaccines. In 1913, the company expanded to produce a gas gangrene and a cholera vaccine. So in Australia in 1916, Commonwealth Serum Labs was established to provide vaccines for the people of Australia and New Zealand. That company expanded rapidly, and in 2004, CSL Limited completed acquisition of Aventus Bearing. In 2007, the company's name was changed to CSL Bearing. CSL Bearing has branded itself as a global rare disease biotech company and also operates one of the world's largest plasma collection networks, CSL Plasma. So, Edwin Klebs. He was a groundbreaking microbiologist specializing in infectious diseases, and he is credited with seeing the first diphtheria bacterium and is credited with being responsible for the beginnings of modern bacteriology. In addition being to being the first to identify the bacteria that causes diphtheria, Klebs was also the first to inoculate syphilis into monkeys. He did that in 1878. Well. The first to produce tuberculosis experimentally in animals by injecting milk from infected cows. The first to identify the typhoid bacillus, and he had many other breakthroughs attributed to him. On the flip side, Klebs was also an impetuous failed businessman who is responsible for many medical blunders. Wow. Yeah. So he was a guy that Loeffler didn't want to have anything to do with. So Loeffler was also credited with discovering the organism causing diphtheria. 
He created Loeffler serum, a coagulated blood serum used for detection of the bacteria, and he also discovered the cause of foot and mouth disease. Hmm. Although Loeffler and Klebs worked together on the discovery of the organism causing diphtheria, Loeffler did his best to distance himself from Klebs. So Dr. Joseph P. O'Dwyer. Okay. He was the American physician who invested, who was very invested in public health, and he invented the intubation tube for treating patients with diphtheria. It was said that his invention also killed him. Many practitioners used the device incorrectly, resulting in significant trauma and even death with their patients. There are many complaints that O'Dwyer took very much to heart, rendering him unable to eat or sleep. Around this time, his wife also died. He continued working in spite of his poor mental and physical health and ultimately contracted diphtheria-related cardiomyopathy. Oh, wow. He died a poor man, leaving three young sons at home. He had not patented his invention, and his sons had to be placed in care. Ultimately, O'Dwyer's invention resulted in a 50% reduction in deaths among those afflicted. So, yeah, Emil Roy. How do you say it again? R-O-I. R-O-U-X? I would pronounce it as, as a who. But. Roo. Okay. Uh, he's considered the founder of the field of immunology and is a co-founder of the Pasteur Institute. He was responsible for the Institute's production of anti-diphtheria serum. He also investigated disease such as cholera, chicken cholera, rabies, tuberculosis, tetanus, and syphilis. Rue was one of the first scientists invited. You probably have like 10 different pronunciations of this name. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Um, Rex, yeah. Rex said that. Yeah, invited to work in the New Pasteur Institute. And within a year, um, had organized and was teaching the world's first ever course in microbiology. Andre Yersin co-prepared the first anti-plague serum and was co-discoverer of the bacillus responsible for the bubonic plague. Yersin collaborated with Rue on the discovery of the diphtheria toxin. Midlife, Yersin moved to Vietnam, where he worked as a physician and was a pioneer in the cultivation of rubber plants. <laughs> Still revered in Vietnam today, Yersin has many streets and educational facilities named after him. Wow. Yeah. Kitasato Sibasa Bureau, simultaneously with Yersin, he discovered the infectious agent of bubonic plague. In 1901, he was nominated for the first Nobel Prize in medicine. With von Bering, he also discovered the diphtheria antitoxin serum. He was the first person to grow the tetanus bacillus in pure culture and co-developed the tetanus serum. He worked on antitoxins for both diphtheria and anthrax, isolated and described the organism causing dysentery, and investigated the science behind public health. For his contributions to medicine, he was awarded a baronetcy, and his image will be on Japan's new 1,000 yen banknote to be released in 2024. So Paul Ehrlich, former friend, later enemy, discovered (laughs) a method for using dye to stain tissues that is still commonly used today. He formed the basis of standardization for Sira. In 1891, he was invited by Robert Koch to work with him at his Berlin Institute of Infectious Disease. And by 1896, the company had created a new branch just for Ehrlich called the Serum Research and Testing Institute. Although Ehrlich was working together with von Bering on diphtheria research and they had agreed to share in the profits, ultimately Ehrlich was pressured by von Bering to 
into signing for just an 8% take. And then to make matters worse, the 1901 Nobel Prize for the work they had done together was awarded solely to von Bering. <laughs> Ehrlich felt he had not been given adequate recognition for this work and, ref right. yeah, and refused to speak with von Bering ever again. Ehrlich went on to formulate the side chain theory, which is now the basic principle of immunity. And for this, he was co-awarded the 1908 Nobel Prize, along with Ilya Mechkinow. Ehrlich was considered the co-founder of chemotherapy. He also developed the drug Salversan, which is the first and only effective treatment for syphilis at the time. Hmm. Ehrlich was well known for being a kind and modest man. So Dr. Herman Biggs, who used his own money to purchase the first horses used to produce serum for the uh, diphtheria antitoxin in New York City, was a pioneer in the field of public health. Biggs was knighted by the King of Spain for his services in preventative medicine. He is one of 23 names commemorated in the frieze on the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. <laughs> so Dr. T. Mitchell Prudent was a pathologist who also contributed to the purchase of horses for New York City, along with Dr. Biggs, money out of his own pocket. Alexander Glennie was a British immunologist who started working for Wellcome Physiological Research Labs in 1889. I think it's like Glaxo Wellcome now. Um, and had risen to be head of immunology in 1906. His area of focus was immunization and antitoxin, including those for tetanus, diphtheria, and chemical weapons. In 1904, Glennie accidentally discovered the properties of the diphtheria toxoid. In 1921, he and J. Sudmerson discovered the primary and secondary immune response. In 1925 and 26, Glennie developed an alum precipitated diphtheria toxoid. Gaston Ramon, who is married to the grandniece of Emile Roch, was a French veterinarian whose work ultimately extended to that of biologist. That's officially 11 different. Uh, yes. Pronunciations of the name. Ramon was a major contributor to the development of effective diphtheria and tetanus, tetanus vaccines and developed a method for inactivating toxins using formaldehyde, a method still used today. He also developed the method for combining vaccines and developed the method for determining potencies of vaccines. Although he received 155 Nobel Prize nominations, he was never awarded the coveted prize. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of sad because he was yeah. a vet, probably. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Veterinarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's going to give it to a vet? <laughs> so the Hawks Company, a German company that first started marketing Bering and Ehrlich's diphtheria remedy back in 1894, was initially founded by Willem Meister in 1896 as a chemical company specializing in dye stuffs. The company soon branched into life sciences and has gone through many mergers and subsequent name changes over the years. One of the mergers resulted in the company being known as I.G. Farber. This company was very active in politics in the 1920s, ran its own spy network, was behind the push for Germany to rearm after World War I, and promoted Hitler in 1933. It's also known as a company that impeded the growth of the chemical industry in the U.S. due to their habit of dumping cheap products. After World War II, the managers of I.G. Farber were prosecuted at the Nuremberg trials for their exploitation of slave labor and for doing drug testing on camp concentration camp prisoners. Oh, boy. Yeah. I.G. Farber. Still around today. Mm, kind of. I.G. Farber <laughs> was considered a cartel and as such was broken up after World War II. The company ultimately re rebounded and by the end of the 20th century, it was the world's largest chemical corporation. 
The company in its early days developed antipyrin, one of the world's first analgesics, Novocaine, Salvarasan, the world's first syphilis treatment. In 1906, first synthesized adrenaline and then was the first to isolate insulin in 1923. More recently, the company merged in 1999 to become Aventus Deutschland, and then in 2004 became Sanofi Synthlab. Fun <laughs> fact, founder Willem Meister's son's godfather was Kaiser Willem II, and his grandson, <clears throat> William von Meister, an American, founded America Online. Huh. Yeah. There you go. Two generations. Okay, so the Pasteur Incident Institute, very different from this Hoxt company. Very different from, than the Pasteur Incident as well. Yes. Uh, so the Pasteur Institute yes. is a French not-for-profit private foundation that was established in 1887 by scientist Louis Pasteur for the purpose of studying microorganisms and infectious diseases. The Institute has been responsible for helping to control diphtheria, tetanus, tuberculosis, polio, influenza, diphtheria, yellow fever, the plague, and was the first to isolate HIV back in 1983. In World War I, the Pasteur Institute was able to vaccinate just under a million soldiers against typhoid. And in World War II, during the occupation, under the leadership of Pasteur's nephew, Valerie Radeau, became a pharmacy for the resistance and played a significant part in a planned typhoid infection of a division of the Wehrmacht. Since 1908, 10 scientists from the Pasteur Institute have won Nobel Prizes in medicine or physiology. Wow. Sadly, in the 1970s, the Institute was almost bankrupt. Fortunately, it recovered and most recently, in January 2020, made significant contributions in cultivating the sequence of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID in the early days of the recent COVID-19 epidemic. So that was very early, if that was January 2020. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, another company, Mass Biologics, was established in 1894 by the Commonwealth of the Massachusetts Board of Health at Harvard's Bussey Institute under the leadership of director Theobald Sm Smith, with the sole focus being to make diphtheria antitoxin. In 1914, Mass Biologics introduced the diphtheria vaccine into general use in the state of Massachusetts. They also went on to develop and manufacture the following. Smallpox vaccine, 1904. Typhoid vaccine, 1912. The Schick test for diphtheria immunity, 1915. Anti-pneumonia, pneumococcus serum, 1917. Scarlet fever antitoxin, 1925. A toxin for the Schick test, 1936. Tetanus vaccine, 1941. Pertussis vaccine, 1949, and the combination diphtheria tetanus pertussis vaccine of 1950. Today, mass biologics are independently continuing work to find a way to remove horses from the middle of the serum factory equation by coming up with a diphtheria toxoid derived from human serum. So we will quickly run through diphtheria in the post-war world. All right. Are you looking forward to it? Well, you don't see it much anymore, so it's, yes. it's pretty good. Well, good, but... I'm, I'm, I guess in other parts of the world, yeah. not as... Okay, so by post-World War II, mass immunization had greatly reduced the diseases incident in the Western world and is sometimes referred to as the forgotten disease. Can't even spell it anymore. Yeah. The inoculation schedule for children today includes a series of five shots, typically using the combined diphtheria, pertussis, 
uh, tetanus vaccine at two months, four months, six months, between 15 and 18 months, and four to six years of age. Canada was one of the first nations to implement a mass immunization program. Stats from 2016-2017 show that the USA has a 93% vaccination rate. Back in 1979, the New York City Health Department donated many of its records to the National Museum of American History, including those that touch on its work with the antitoxin production. So that's where I was able to read some pages from like saying what each horse gave and yeah. its stats, etc. Uh, what, by, is it, what is it about horses that inspire people to take careful uh, record, keep keep careful records? But to think about thoroughbred. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah, because that goes back like three hundred years. <laughs> yeah. To Mister Brown's gray mare. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, in. 1987, demand in the Western world was so low for the antitoxin and in the U.S. that in the U.S. the Otisville blood and serum collection facility was sold. In the 1990s, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, due to vaccination rates dropping in some former Soviet territories, epidemics broke out. So that's the first kind of epidemics in the Western world. Hmm. 2003 saw the last case of diphtheria reported in the U.S.A., in 2017, there were just under 9,000 diphtheria cases globally, most frequently in places undergoing destabilization due to strife and migration, specifically Venezuela, Nigeria, Yemen, and Bangladesh. I see. A 2011 outbreak in Nigeria resulted in a fatality rate of 43% of those aged four or younger. Wow. Yeah. In the USA, between 1996 and 2018, 14 cases were reported, with one death of a 63-year-old man who had just returned from a country experiencing a diphtheria outbreak. In a 2021 study, researchers identify bacterial variants that may be evolving resistance to our current vaccines and antibacterials. Uh-oh. Yeah. Since 2021, it has been noticed that diphtheria is once again on the rise, with an increase in reported cases amongst migrants in the EU. 54 cases were reported in eight EU countries, and this is in 2021, 64 in Germany, 42 in Austria, 18 in Belgium, 14 in France, 7 in Norway, 5 in the Netherlands, 3 in Italy, and 1 in Spain, with an additional 25 in Switzerland, and 53 in the UK, for a total of 232 in 2022 alone. So far in 2023, Nigeria's experienced an outbreak with 557 cases reported between January and April. In the UK, recently, there has been a yearly increase in the disease. In all cases, the people affected were asylum seekers, and the main group of people were males in the 14 to 25 age group, and the majority of them resided in the southeast of England. They were kind of scattered. There was a map, and it showed they were scattered all along, all throughout England, but not many in London, but a lot down all around um, Canterbury area, oh, where we're going to be in two weeks. Yeah, oh, no. Fantastic. <laughs> Our shots are up to date. In conclusion, there are no longer any American horses involved in the production of diphtheria antitoxin serum. Because demand for the antitoxin is so low, the serum is barely economical to make. <laughs> As a result, That's production kind of has been outsourced to facilities in other parts of the world that continue to inject horses with weakened diphtheria to produce the antitoxin. 
Due to the scarcities of these facilities, the antitoxin is currently in short supply globally. As of January 11, 2022, the diphtheria toxin or antitoxin available in Canada is equine horse serum produced by VINS Bioproducts Limited India. In the USA, the antitoxin is held at the CDC in Atlanta. And 2016, a consortium of animal welfare groups got together to fund research to develop a product that could lead to more effective treatment of infectious diphtheria. Citing outdated treatments and methodologies, this would also spare thousands of horses now being bled to produce antitoxins. The PETA- yeah, I'm surprised that uh, something like that wasn't developed, but I, I guess it's you know, as you say, it's been disappearing, so there's mm-hmm. not much incentive. Yeah, so it, to... it's kind of like, oh, it's going away, it's gone. It was, yeah, they <laughs> called it the forgotten disease because it's, yeah. yeah, people don't even know what it is anymore. So why mm. develop a different way of treating it or or preventing it if it's not even here, yeah. I guess is the, the thought. So, sure. And like they said, it's, it's not going to make you any money, so it's not economical to do, so why bother? So the PETA International Science Consortium came up with the idea to get horses out of the blood industry. Um, horses, most of the horses used live on farms in India. So the 2015 inspection by the group of veterinarians that found the horses suffering from neglect, standing in their own waste, many were so malnourished that their ribs were easily visible, scoring around two on the Henneke scale. Many were being mistreated and were in pain. Some were blind or lame while others tested significantly anemic, which is typically rare in horses, but understandable if their blood is being drained. The PETA Consortium then awarded Michael Hust of Germany's Technical University Braunschweig 134,000 euros, so about $142,000, to develop a new diphtheria treatment. The human antitoxin would be grown with human cells in a test tube instead of being drawn from the blood of a horse. Hust and Esther Wienzel, a fellow medical researcher, are working on creating a lab-made antibody involving a recombinant antibody molecule that would be built genetically in a lab setting and then cloned. So in addition to solving the issue of poor standards of animal welfare, those being given the treatment would no longer risk having to suffer from serum sickness, as the serum is directly derived from humans, not horses. Currently, 20% of those treated with our current methodology, end up, uh, or I don't think methodology is the right word, treatment, uh, develop serum sickness. Hmm. So using a technique called phage display, the German researchers have immunized three people against diphtheria. So the researchers gave the three donors diphtheria immunized blood that had been taken from them, and then they use this to isolate the immune cells that produce antibodies antibodies that attack the diphtheria toxin. Then they identified the genes encoding these antibodies and cloned them, cloned them with phages. So the phages produced antibodies on their surface, allowing the researchers to select those bound to the bacterial toxin. This then allows the researchers to build a catalog of millions of phages. This is important as each phage has a different antibody on its surface. Uh, Researchers have learned that when two or three antibodies are combined, this makes the most effective antitoxin. A combination of two or three of the strongest antibodies has produced good results both in vitro and in vivo, and next come larger clinical trials on humans. 
Hust was just ready to start extensive human trials and believed it would take at least another 10 years of clinical trials before a human antitoxin is available for people with diphtheria. Hmm. So since diphtheria is uh, now a rare disease in the Western world, few companies would be willing to invest large sums of money in developing Hust technique. So researchers were hoping to raise money from private donors globally or from global health authorities. So they were in the process of requesting money from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the European and Developing Countries Clinical Trials Partnership, the National Institute of Health in the U.S., and the Wellcome Trust in the U.K., but unfortunately the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed the research and funding back by another decade. Hust and the available lab resources were seconded to finding a vaccine for COVID. So concurrent to all this, uh, the University of Massachusetts Medical School, not-for-profit Mass Biologics, is also working on the problem. At this point, they are actually further ahead than HUST is in the program, um, and they've already completed human safety trials of an antibody called S315. The end. Oh, it's the end. Mm -hmm. Wow. Very... Very now. We finished now. <laughs> we finished now. It's, it's ongoing. It is ongoing, isn't it? Because we'll, you'll never, we'll never defeat these things because they are always with us. Always with us and always changing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. We can't, we can't, uh, although you think with, you think with diphtheria, because it's been, you know, so, so nearly eradicated that it would be harder for it to evolve, to beat, you know what I mean? Like, like it's one thing for something like the common cold or something that's fairly common and is constantly, you know, facing, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, facing, you know, things that are killing it. It, uh, you know, has to evolve. But whereas if it's diphtheria, I mean, what, what is it doing? <laughs> it's just, mm -hmm. you know, it's not that it's not very common. But I guess I guess it's becoming more common again. So, mm -hmm. yeah, kind of disturbing. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting, dear. Um, yeah, medical mystery. Mm -hmm. I don't have much to say about it because normally I have like thoughts about the behavior of people in other stories, but in this case, it's you know besides scientists being being ding dongs in in the early days of uh, scientific research. Although it wasn't scientists so much, it was more doctors by that point. Like in England, you know, they had like the Royal Society, you know, that which had been founded like in the 1700s, I think, around that time. You know, at least around the time of Newton, it mm -hmm. existed. You know, and so there was, there was like sharing of scientific information amongst people who were part of the society. They may not have, they may have been like kind of a closed uh, culture in a way that they didn't share with people they considered to be cranks or whatever, the people that were outside of that society. So, you know, if you were like a working class person who was scientifically motivated and was doing things, you would have a hard time breaking into the ranks of the Royal Society because it was basically like, you know, people who are in upper class, mm -hmm. you know, wealthy people and stuff like that, people of leisure. I think, is it, uh, we've seen some movies where people were kind of poo-pooed and... Mm, yeah, like... that's kind of later on. I think then those are things are, are they you know, but yes, they were poo-pooed for, you know, although... Not being the right type of person. Yeah, although, you know, I think we're both thinking about Paddington, yes. in which case... <laughs> You know, there's a person claiming there's bears in Peru, so, you know, who like marmalade. So, I mean, like, it's hard to blame the Royal Society for t taking a looking askance. I don't even know if it was a Royal Society. I think it was like some kind of pre yeah, I think that pretend organization. Yeah, I think Club or yeah, something. Yeah, I don't think it even exists. <laughs> but I'm glad that you're outraged along about the same, it. Along the same lines. I'm glad you're still outraged about that, too. 
But yeah, I mean, the problem, of course, is that science, as practiced in, you know, the you know hundred you know hundreds of years ago, was that it basically was like the domain of people who had the leisure time to pursue it. You know, so it was hard for people who didn't have leisure time to mm-hmm. be scientists because yeah, yeah, you know, you need to have the spare time to go digging around for fossils on a beach or or you know whatever you, mm-hmm. whatever you did that that uh, that you. You know, having apples fall on your head and coming up with theories for mm-hmm. that's I don't know if the apple really fell on his head, but yeah. I love gravity. <laughs> you love gravity. There you go. <laughs> a quote from a movie we just saw. Yeah. So anyway, that was interesting. Now let's go on to some letters. We got some mail. Yeah, I've got a couple. Oh, okay. You want me to start with that then? That one goes back to uh, okay. a previous episode. Well, yes, but yes. we can assume that people have listened someone to Someone updating some info. Okay. So this is uh, from someone, from Desiree, uh, who says, Hi there, just listen to this episode. And that's referring to the one I'm assuming... Uh, Farlap. Uh, Farlap, Farlap, yeah. One. And I need to point out something. Uh-oh. <laughs> Farlap skeleton is no longer at the Dominion Museum. It's been in, muse- it's been in the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongariwa or then it puts in brackets, to Papa, in Wellington since 1998. I can also confirm that it's still there since I saw it back in January. Well, thank you for that update, Desiree. I appreciate that. Even a picture. Even sent a picture of it. Yep, that's Farlap. How could you not recognize him? Yep. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. And in the world of, of uh, people writing into the, to the show itself, we had a letter from Louise. And uh, Louise said, uh, this is in reference to Toxic. Our story of the po- the poisoner of wives and general all around uh, ding dong. Louis says, "Wow, that was epic! I don't know how I missed that Farrah Fawcett TV movie based on the true story. From the original air date, I was likely busy studying for university exams. The movie is on YouTube, so maybe I'll check it out and nitpick the inaccuracies now that I know the whole sordid tale." De Luis did not tell us the name of that episode, so. Well, that was the that was the one about toxic the. Mm-hmm. But we don't know the name of the movie. Oh, okay. The Farrah Fawcett movie? Yeah. I mentioned it in the... Did you mention it in the show? Yeah. Oh, okay. I can't remember Sorry. the name of it either. Well, then, I'm, I'm not mistaken. We have mentioned it, so it's uh, there for, for people to discover. Lisa wrote back and said, Yes, I found the episode too, Louise. I got about one third of the way through and then turned it off. Actually, probably one quarter of the way. Nothing had actually happened. I will try again when I have more time. Then we can compare notes. I think I actually posted it to the... Um, Facebook page. Speaking of Facebook pages, hey everyone, don't forget we have a Facebook page for Horse Mysteries. Go there and like the page. Like it and follow it so you can keep up with what's happening. Shannon also wrote to say that she's loving our podcast and she's so impressed. I'm impressed and I'm part of it. (laughs) Not impressed by myself. I'm impressed by you, dear. All right. Well, thank you everyone for your comments. We do really appreciate it. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're wondering how you can get in touch with us, one good way is to go to, as we said before, our Facebook page. It's uh, called Horse Mysteries. And if you go there, you'll find that Lisa is posting lots of in- interesting information, lots of interesting follow-up information about the various podcasts that we've done. So uh, have you caught up to where we are yet, dear? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. So we have information there for all the episodes, uh, extra things that you might be interested in, some extra research, some pictures. And uh, you're welcome to go to that website. It's called, or not website, but welcome to go to Facebook 
go there, like it and follow it so you can keep up with what's happening. And we'll start posting the podcast there as well when they start coming out. I have resisted doing that because I didn't want to disturb Lisa's uh, chronology. But now that it's uh, free for all, I will be posting things there or I'll get in, be getting her to do it for me. And you can also write to us at our website. We're part of the Sneaky Dragon Network, sneakydragon.com. If you go there, you'll find episodes of Horse Mysteries. And under each episode is a place for you to leave comments. And so we'd love to hear from you there. Don't forget to, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or I don't think we're on Spotify. I can't figure out how to get us on there. But if you are on any of those, don't forget to go there, like us, rate us, give us five stars, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear your thoughts on the show on, in that for, form of all. Because the more you do that, the more we get out there on, on these various podcast apps. Uh, your interest makes them interested in us. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening this week to what was it called again dear the murder of children <laughs> something like that it was called the strangling angel of children or how did horses help save the children there you go something that horses were doing they didn't even know they were doing it probably but just another great thing about horses mm-hmm. is their their u- usefulness to us is great more and than sad. just yeah. be more great and sad it's an unfortunate part of it of course although it sounds like the american ones were not badly treated no no but yeah the fact that it is something they're still using for all those other diseases. And yeah, yeah. Like, whoa, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. It's something that probably wouldn't have happened before this century, to be honest with you. No, I think you're right. People were pretty upset about, like, vivisection and stuff like that in the past, which we seem to not have as much. People don't seem to get upset about it now. Like, you don't have people writing articles denouncing vivisection. I guess PETA would be, like, the last kind of bastion of, mm-hmm. of anti-animal experimenting and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, most people would think of that as sort of crank, crankish in our culture because we're so used to it now. The idea that we need to do research on animals so that we can help people. And so we kind of look sideways at these things or look away from them. We mm-hmm. do something with them anyway. We look in a way that doesn't mean we're looking at it very well. Right. Yeah. But anyway, let's not leave it a downer. Let's leave it an upper. Listen to Horse Mysteries, everyone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. And that episode is going to be called? Vetted. Vetted. Yeah. Wow. Vet-related. Love it. Mm-hmm. Or is it a World War II veteran? No. Vet-related. Yeah. I was right the first time. I shouldn't have made a second guess. Now I look like an idiot. <laughs> Typical. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.